Since you guys seemed so ready right now, we are going to start right now. All of you people that are still getting coffee, listen, this is a no judgment zone. This is vacation time. I'm not going to judge you if you don't judge me. So we're going we're gonna to roll with this. Um, I, I want to start with uh, a little bit of a testimony because the testimony gives segue to what I'm going to share in the scripture. It's I want to connect the scripture to real life. I want you to understand what James is going to be speaking about. If you saw the title, you saw that the title of this message is A Demonic Faith. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Um, I shared yesterday that I was born in California. I think I shared that with you. I was born in California, but I didn't live there very long. Uh, when I was five years old, we moved to uh, Hawaii. We lived to, we, I lived on the island of Oahu. I lived there for about three and a half years. I loved my time there. I got acclimated to the sun and the water and joy and happiness. And uh, then we moved from Hawaii when I was around nine years old. We moved to Okinawa, Japan. And that was a completely different experience. But before we moved to Japan, my last summer in Hawaii, I went to a Christian camp. I didn't share this yesterday, did I? No? Good. Okay, I went to a Christian camp. And I went to this Christian camp. Now remember, my name is Jack Daniel Napier. I was named after a whiskey. My mom and dad didn't go to church. They had VCR tapes with movies that I should not have watched that they just gave to the kids. They, they had these brown pull-out drawers, you know, that used to slide the VHS uh, tapes in. And, and they would have the label because they recorded everything and didn't buy anything. And uh, they recorded stuff off the VCR when you could do that on cable. And they wrote the names of the movies. And as kids... Um, my parents were not raised well. They didn't know how to raise kids. They didn't know how to be there for me. So our babysitter was the TV, and we would just watch whatever movies we wanted, movies I should not have seen we watched. So my growing up was very distant from God. We didn't go to church when I was a kid. My mom has a Catholic background, and, um, but she wasn't a devout Attender, she didn't go to mass, and so there wasn't a real connection with God. I, I make this joke; I've told this to other people. The closest I got to talking about God in my home was listening to Led Zeppelin's "Stairway to Heaven." That was the closest I got. And as crazy as it sounds, the lyrics—you don't know what the lyrics mean, just like I don't. But when I was a kid, I I loved electronics. I loved LCD and buttons, and I remember when my dad got this new stereo and he left it there for us, and I would be pressing and I would listen to "Stairway to Heaven." Uh, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin and there was this drum solo and this guitar solo thing like five minutes in and I remember listening to that and just trying to process some of the stuff that I went through some of the pain that I had and um, had no idea what the song was about but that's my growing up but when I was eight I had a friend this friend's name was Heath Nelson he and I loved math class I'm a big math nerd I loved math. I was always good at math. I did math different than the students next to me, but I loved it, and I would, I would get good grades. That's the only good grade I ever got when I was growing up. Um, but I had my friend Health, Heath Nelson. Now, he was a real smarty, smarty pants. He was actually gifted, and he made straight A's in school. But we would sit together, and we eventually became friends in math class, and he said, you've got to come with me to this camp, this summer camp. So I convinced my parents. His parents paid for it because his parents were Christians, and they got to know us and realized we needed to go to that camp. And so my parents <laughs> dropped me off at that camp, literally dropped me off, goodbye, um, and I stayed at this camp, and at the end of the camp, they had these puppets, and these puppets did this thing, and, and uh, I wet the bed as a kid. 
And so there's this puppet on the bottom bunk and this puppet on the top bunk and the puppet on the bottom bunk had a rain jacket on and an umbrella and they, yeah, I know, I felt horrible. Anyway, they made fun of the whole bedwetting thing and they try to laugh it off, but I remember feeling convicted about that and right after that, a guy comes out and he's like, hey, now this is the real story. This is the real message I'm trying to give you. If you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. Well, I don't know what hell is like. I just, it sounds hot. It doesn't sound like something I'd want. So I raised my hand. If you want to go to heaven, you come up here if you don't want to go to hell. Well, I'm eight. So I'm like, Simon, Heath, my friend, he, my buddy, he raised his hand, and we both go up front, and they're like, listen, you pray this prayer after me. You have to pray this prayer. And they said this prayer. I remember the words, Jesus, come into my heart. Well, as an eight-year-old, I used to watch cartoons on Saturday morning. I watched Dragon Ball Z and Spider-Man and X-Men and all these crazy shows. And uh, in my eight-year-old mind, I imagined that there was this white German Jesus head with a fog behind him coming in and my rib cage opening up and Jesus coming in my heart. And I remember being a little scared, but I thought, well, I don't want to go to hell, though. And so I'm like repeating these words. I'm imagining this. And I remember thinking, okay, Jesus, don't mess up anything in there. You know, like I remember thinking that kind of thing as an eight-year-old, like don't mess up my room, my heart kind of thing. So like I pray this prayer. We get done. The next morning we leave for camp. We leave to go home from camp. Next morning, I visit with a counselor because I'm one of the dudes that raised, rose my hand. And so I'm talking to this guy. I'm like, listen, I need you to write down that prayer for me. If you could write down that prayer, that'd be really helpful. He's like, why do, you, why do I need to write down that prayer? Maybe he thought I was going to be an evangelist. And I was like, no, I've got an older sister and a younger brother, and I'm a really bad brother, and I'm for sure going to have to pray that prayer again because I'm going to need to get saved. Again, I know I'm going to be bad. And, uh, and so, like, I guess he appreciated my honesty, but he was like, no, 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 no. Once you pray this prayer, you're good for life. He's like, once you pray this prayer, that's it forever. And I'm like, eh, is it though? Like, I, I didn't, why don't you just, I'll, st I'll you write it down and, and, you know, who knows? You know, who knows where I, what I'll do with this. And he's like, no, once you pray this prayer, you're good forever. And I remember thinking, that doesn't make any sense to me. I prayed this prayer, not sure what's going on, not sure what happened, and supposedly I'm good forever. Well, I locked that away in my mind for many years. And when I say locked away, it's not that I forgot about it. I actually ended up pulling it back out as a teenager. I was 12, 13 years old, that pre-teenage, you know that age where you know a lot of stuff and you're making good decisions. And so <laughs> I'm, talking to my, I'm talking to my sister. My sister became a Christian. My sister is, you know, at that age, she's, she could sing. Uh, she started learning how to play the piano. She started going to church. They have asked her to join the choir. She sung on stage as a little girl. Everyone loved my sister. Now me, chubby, not knowing what, not athletic, like to play video games, not the church scene. I get there and uh, I'm like, this, this isn't for me. And I remember saying, no, you gotta go to church. So I went to church with her a couple times. Well, I entered a bad stage in life. I entered, uh, I don't know if I shared with you yesterday, my, I have four younger brothers. Two of them have a different dad than I do. I still call them brothers. I don't even call them half-brothers. They're my brothers. Uh, but they have a different dad. My mom, when we lived in Hawaii, got messed up into drugs and started abusing substances and going out on the weekends and leaving us with someone else. And so that whole childhood, plus I was abused as a little kid, and, uh, and there was a lot of things that happened to me when I was young. 
And so I had a bad relationship with my mother. My parents split up when I was nine, so we, we moved to Okinawa, Japan. My dad finds out that the kids that she's pregnant with aren't his in the first place. That's a big deal. And so my whole world just turned upside down at nine years old. And I remember going to my mom and talking to her and saying, hey, um, you know, I remember when I was a kid, when I was, I think I was around four years old, my mom had these friends and we went over to their house and uh, and something happened with me in a different place in a different room and I remember saying hey when that happened that was a big deal you know there, there was an investigation someone got sent to prison this was a big deal why didn't you protect me why didn't you do something to help me and my mom was at a very low point in her life my mom was raised by non-christian parents in Detroit Michigan very poor her father abused her. Her sister's boyfriends abused all of them. And so my mom, having a horrible past, not really knowing how to process it and dealing with a lot of pain, I didn't know that at, at this age. My mom was trying to carry so much guilt and shame, she didn't know how to, how to live. She didn't know how to process. She didn't know how to deal. And so she yelled at me and said, and there's no kids in here, right? I don't think there's any kids. She yelled at me and said, F you, you're the reason why I don't have any friends. And that put a big burden on my heart, a big guilt burden where I was just mad at her. I was just upset at her. And so when I, when, when that had that all happened when I was nine. So when I was 13, I was in a rebellious stage of life. I was looking for uh, fatherly figures in, in teenage guys that lived around me in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, when we moved back to Detroit after Okinawa, Japan, my dad wanted to divorce my mom but he didn't want to leave us in Japan. You know, he wasn't that bad. And so we got stationed. He worked, he was a Marine. We got stationed in, uh, in back in Michigan. My parents are from Detroit, Michigan. We got stationed there. Well, my dad moved in with his parents and we moved in with my mom's gay sister and her partner and their kids. And so I grew up in a home as a teenager, 15 people in one two-story house in Detroit. And, uh, and I looked up to my cousin Nando. My mom's Hispanic, they're all Hispanic. I looked up to my cousin Nando. Well, he was into drugs and other things and gang-related activities, and so I wanted to be like him. So I was in a very strange place in life. I was really looking for life and, and leadership in all the wrong places. So I go to church with my skinny, pretty, could-sing sister, who's now just an angel, and she's playing like Stephen Curtis Chapman and Michael W. Smith and a bunch of other songs I could not care less about. And I'm like, this is not my culture. This is not my people. This isn't who I am. And her friends would try to witness to me. Her friends would, they, okay, you looked at her and she looked like the poster child for what we were in. Then you look at me and they're like, we got to save that kid. We got, I wore like baggy pants. I had like the silver chain. I was thugged out. And so I go to church as a thug, and they're like, we, got, we need to save this kid. And the kids would come up to me and say, hey, we need to share the gospel with you. And they would start sharing. I'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't need that. The reason why I don't need that is when I was eight years old, I prayed a prayer. And I prayed for Jesus to come into my heart. Now, what do you think a youth ministry environment would do to a kid that said, I prayed the prayer at this age, at age 13? Guess what all the kids did? nothing. They were stumped. All they ever were taught was, you got to pray this prayer, you pray this prayer. Once prayed, always saved. I, I'll just tell you from the onset, I don't believe in once prayed, always saved. I believe in once saved, always saved, but I don't believe in once prayed, always saved, because that's two different things. They can be the same thing, but they're not always. And so 
Anyway, they would be like, oh, he, he said he prayed the prayer. We got nothing. So they would just leave me alone. They would just leave me alone. They had nothing to offer me. No one taught them. No one taught them the scriptures. No one taught them what it meant to be saved. No one taught them what it meant to have faith. Nobody taught them. And so they were stumped. I was 13 years old. That, that became, I got saved when I was 16. I'll share that story in a, in a, in a little bit. I got saved at 16. At 17, I knew I wanted to join. I wanted to be a part of the ministry. I came to my youth minister at 17, and I said, hey, I brought my Bible. Now, you, you guys know this because most of you are from up north. In Michigan, there is no, I, I was called into ministry. That, that was like not a common term. So I come to my youth minister uh, with the Bible and say, hey, I know this sounds crazy. You know my past. You know my background. You know how God has changed me. I want to do what has been done to me. I want to use this Bible. I believe that there's life in this book, and I want to use this book, and I want to share it with other kids like me so that they can be saved. I want them to truly be saved. And he's like, well, you need to go to Bible college. That was his answer. He was from the South. He's from Mississippi. So he's, he, say, he tells me I should, go to, uh, I should go to Bible college. After I got to Bible college, I realized that the epidemic of not understanding Faith, not understanding what a real faith is, was so prevalent because I realized it's written about in every book in the New Testament. Every book in the New Testament talks about what a real faith is. You have the Gospels. John even explicitly says it. The other three are the same. I have written these things down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, you will have life in his name. I want you to know Jesus Christ. I want you to know him and believe in him, and I want you to have eternal life. The other Gospels are the same. You go from Acts, Romans, the Paul's letters. He's telling them all the time, hey, listen, if you believe this, this is, this is the truth, so act like this. Your faith should look a certain way. Real believers look a certain way. He even rebuked Peter in Galatians 2 about how he, him not living out his faith. And so faith is written about all the way through. Jesus' last words to the church are what? Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, these churches, the seven churches. He wrote to those churches and all of them except one, although the one was commended for their faith. All of them are about, listen, I'm going to remove my lampstand. I'm going to remove my spirit from you if you don't live out your faith. This is not what I intended. So I realized that faith was a real issue, and James talks about it specifically. One of the most specific passages in the New Testament is written in James chapter 2, and he describes three kinds of faith. And so I want to walk you through these three kinds of faith. Three different kinds of faith in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. You have verses 14 through 18, and he gives the first kind of faith. He says there's different faiths out there, and the first one is a dead faith. There is something called a dead faith. James calls it a dead faith. In James 2, 14, it says, he, he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And he uses that word that very specifically. He's saying, can that kind of faith save him? And then verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So it's really verses 14 to 18, but I'm, I'm showing you verse 17 that you, so you see that he calls this kind of faith a dead faith. And he's asking a question about a dead faith. There's a kind of faith that he calls dead, and he asks two questions. 
The first, questions it, the first question about a dead faith is what good does it do? What good does a dead faith do? Like what good does it offer to the world? He says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is that? What good is produced from that? Where's the fruit from that? Where's the effect of that? Where's, where's God's mission in that? So what, what good does it do? And you know what faith is. Faith is a belief system. It's what you say you believe. It's who my faith system tells me who I am, uh, what, I, what happens when I die, my purpose, who created me. This kind of faith that we find in the Bible, it's a belief system, but that faith does things. So he's asking, what good does it do? What, what good is produced uh, if you don't apply it? What good is it to know something but not apply it? So faith should be more than just what you think. Faith should go beyond what you think in your head. And so he asked that question, what good does it do? And the second question is, who does it save? He asked two very specific questions. He's very practical. This is an older guy. Maybe he's around 60 years old. He's writing this letter. He's the prominent Jewish leader in, or Messianic Jewish leader in Jerusalem. He became the elder over the church at Jerusalem, the Messianic Jews. So he is one of the most prominent figures in this day. He, he rose uh, to stardom in a sense. And so he's asking them, hey, who does it save? And the implied answer, because in Greek it's really neat, in this language you can ask a question with a certain form, a certain structure, and it lets you know if the answer is no. And the answer to this structure is no. So when he says, can that faith save him? If you read it, if you hear it in Greek, in that Koine Greek, in that language, you know, oh, he means no. He's being rhetorical. He's saying, can that faith save him? And the answer is no, that faith cannot save him. So he's saying, what good does it do? It's a little bit different structure. It doesn't do any good. And then he says, can it save them? And the answer is no. He's already telling them that the answer is no. And so he says, can that faith save him? Another thing I wanted to share with you, because we, don't, we miss this in the English translations. That word that, it's a far demonstrative pronoun. And when you say this, you're talking about something near. When you say that, you're talking about something far. This particular word that speaks of that is supposed to signify a type of something. Because in this passage, in, Romans, or in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 21 at least, he's giving up this structure, he's, or he's, he's showing the structure. That kind of faith, it's its own group, that kind of faith cannot save anybody. A dead faith cannot save. And so he gives that answer that, there's, uh, that it can't save. And then he gives a real-life situation. Because James is a great teacher. He learned from his, old, his older brother. He knows that people like practical things that they can think about. So he gives a real-life situation. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So he gives them a real-life situation. Let's say your brother or sister was hungry or naked and needing something, and you had it to offer, and all you, you didn't give them what they needed, but you just told them. You just, words, you just said, hey, go fill yourself, go warm yourself. It's like wishing somebody well and saying, I hope that works out for you. And he asks a very practical question. Is that how you would treat your grandchildren? If your grandchildren came to you and said, hey, I've got this real legitimate need and I can't fill it, would that stay their need? Wouldn't that become your need? 
you grandparents spoil your grandkids so much. I love it. I kind of love it. The only thing I don't love about it, by the way, is when grandparents talk like this. Oh, I love my grand. It's a different love. It's just different. It's not better. It's just more. It's just special, and if I knew how good it was to have grandkids, I would have had them first. You know, they say all these things. It's like, it's like you know what? I'm not going to feel that way until I have grandkids. So, you know, but, but if your grandchild came to you and said, this is a real legitimate need, even if you had to sacrifice for it, it would become your problem. And that's what James is saying. What good is it if you have what someone else needs and you don't do it for them? And the answer is obvious. It's no good. That is a waste. That's vanity. It's almost accusable. It's almost, you would almost want to make it illegal. It's wrong to do that. It's wrong to do that is this point. So what good is it to wish somebody well and not help them? It's no good. And what James is pointing out is that a faith that isolates itself and doesn't produce fruit, it doesn't work, that kind of faith, it isolates others. It pushes others further from care and from God and from love. It, it pushes people away. So he's bringing up an issue that you can learn a lot from just that one story, but he wants people to know a real faith, a real genuine faith. The whole letter of James is about faith. A real faith will look like this, very practical. You will help your brother or sister in need. And so he finishes it. So also faith by itself, if it does not work, is dead. He wants to give them a visual picture. They're very used to dead things. Now, we know that Jewish culture, you're not supposed to touch dead things. That doesn't mean you don't know what dead things look like. Uh, even in the temple, when they would slaughter an animal, that animal would be dead, but it would be okay to touch that animal because that's part of the sacrifice. So it's not like they didn't know what dead things were like. Very familiar with dead animals, very familiar with dead things. And he's saying a faith that does not have any kind of works behind it, any kind of action, it doesn't produce anything, that's what the Bible calls a dead faith, and it doesn't do any good, and it can't save anybody. So he's giving them some tough news. And then verse 18, but someone will say, he knows someone is going to bring this up. He's smart, okay? He's like that wise professor that knows that someone in the crowd is going to be like, wait, 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 Argumentative. You know, if you have kids, when you tell your kids, go put your shoes on now, what do they say? Are we leaving right now? We're not leaving for 10 more minutes. And you want to be like, you're not smart enough to know the difference. It's going to take you 10 minutes to get your shoes on. Get your, that's what I'm telling you now. Why are you questioning me? So James knows that these adults that he loves, remember, he's their pastor. He's their shepherd. He loves them. He's beloved by them, if you know his history, his story. He's so loved by them. And he says, listen, it's dead if it doesn't do this. So he's trying to give them this, uh, this, this answer, and he says, now I know someone's going to ask. I know, uh, so I'll ask it for you. You have faith and I have works. So some of you are going to be like, no, 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 I have faith. Don't you question me. You know, if you've ever seen those, those, uh, those, have you ever seen that where someone's like, uh-uh, you, you don't question me kind of thing. He's like, I know someone's going to say, I have faith and you have works. And then he tells them, well, duh, you can say you have faith. I have works. You show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. I will show you what I truly believe by what I do. By how I live is going to show you what I truly believe. Because actions, just you know the cliche, actions speak louder than words. Why? Because actions show what you truly believe. What you really believe is shown in the way that you live your life. And so I will show you my faith by my work. So 
Faith is demonstrated with action. Or one thing that I, that I repeat, it's just a very short phrase, it's three words, action reveals belief. Action reveals belief. All throughout the Proverbs, all throughout the Scripture, you see over and over again, action reveals belief. When Jesus was uh, arguing, not arguing, when he was teaching his disciples, and he says, well, let me give you an example. If one guy says to his dad, I'll go do it, but doesn't do it, and then another son at first says, I'm not going to do it. You better do it. I'm not going to do it. But then that second son goes and does it. Which one obeyed? Which one demonstrated the respect to the father in doing what he's supposed to do? The guy who actually did it. So action reveals belief. Action actually shows you what you, act, what you have faith in. So James, you know the letter of James. It's called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. It's the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. James was known as, the, known as the wise, simple, practical, throw illustrations all over the place. He used words like fire and tongue and ships and horses and bridles and all kinds of stuff. And he did that because he knew that the people would remember these pictures. And he's like, faith that doesn't do anything, I want you to imagine a dead thing. That's bad. It's not any good. And you're going to say, oh, I have faith. You're going to argue with me. I do believe. I do believe. You can't tell me what I believe. You don't know my heart. Yeah, you don't know your heart. I, I remember one time I used to be a youth minister. I was talking to a kid, and he, uh, and he was like, yeah, well, you know, you just don't know my heart. And I was like, neither do you. I, I, don't know why peop- I don't know why preachers say only two people know if you're really a Christian or not, God and you. And I want to be like, um, unless you read the New Testament, and then you find out some people really didn't know. They didn't know their own heart. They didn't know that they weren't believers. They found out later some of them have great stories, but you cannot trust your own heart. You don't know your own heart. Your actions will reveal what's really in there. But you could be blind and think that you believe one thing and you really don't. And James also talks about that. Don't deceive yourselves later in chapter, or earlier in chapter 1. And so James is telling them, listen, actions are going to reveal your belief. Don't tell me that you really believe. Don't argue with me. I know you're going to argue. So we've all been asked the question, what do you believe? But in this verse, the Holy Spirit asks... Not what do you believe, but what does your belief do? What does your belief do? That is what the Holy Spirit is teaching through this passage. What does your faith actually do? Not just what do you believe. And if the answer is nothing, James calls that a dead faith. And then he continues in verse 19 with a demonic faith. He gives the second kind of faith. And this one is very intriguing. It's very personal to my testimony. And so I've always loved it just grown close to this this passage in verse 19 he gives them another kind of faith he says you believe that god is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder do you want to be shown you foolish person now listen you don't get away with a lot as a preacher and a speaker and a pastor especially when you call people foolish but james is like a father figure is trying to be aggressive with his language to say hey hey do you want, do I have to prove it to you? Do, you? do I have to show you that you are being foolish by not understanding what I'm saying? Do I have to, uh, do, you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So um, here's part of my testimony. I told you about my eight-year-old. I prayed this prayer and it stumped all the youth kids. But one youth minister, a guy named Greg, just a sweet, loving guy. He couldn't be more different than I am. We liked totally different stuff. We look different. We act different. But when it came to the Bible, somehow God used him to draw me in, and it was because he loved me. He would, spend, he would stay up till midnight 
while I argued as this teenage arrogant kid saying, no, smoking marijuana is not wrong, you know, like all kinds of stuff. And he would be gentle and he would be patient and be like, no. He'd be like, I want to show you the scripture. Well, he built a relationship with me and I became, I grew to love him because he was a great teacher. And he actually walked through the book of Romans with me as a non-believer. It was amazing. Anyway, I, st- I still know him. I still love him. He's actually my brother-in-law today. Um, yeah, there's a, that's a long story. Uh, yeah, it started rocky. No, I'm just kidding. It did. They're great. Uh, but anyway, he, he ministered to me. And one day he was talking to me, and he's like, Hey, Jack, I just want to tell you, I, I hear that you keep saying you're a Christian. I just don't think you're a Christian. Youth ministers can't t- tell kids that. He's like, I, was, I wanted to be like, you're lucky I don't have good parents. Because if I told them this and they were good, they would come talk to you. You know, like, you can't tell me I'm not a Christian. You know, I had no defense. Uh, and he knew my parents, and he knew, yeah, nothing there. And so, um, anyway, he's like, yeah, I don't think you're a Christian. And, and I said, no, oh no, and I pulled out the God card. I was ready. I'd been doing this for eight years. Pulled out my God card. I said, well, when I was eight years old, I already told him the story, but I acted like I was the first time. You know, when I was eight years old, I went to this Christian camp, and I prayed that Jesus would come to my heart, and he did. And uh, ever since then, once prayed, always saved. And he said, why do you think that's true? And I said, I mean, that's what everybody's been saying for a long time. I mean, even, even the other kids are saying this. I mean, this works, right? He's like, oh, let me ask you a question. What, what makes it so true that you are a Christian? He said, and I told him, I, have, I believe in Jesus. And he said, well, okay, let's start there. He said, do you believe that Jesus is God's son? I said, oh, yeah. I said, Jesus is God's son. He goes, okay. Do you believe that Jesus died on a cross? I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay. He's like, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, like, he really came back to life. And I was like, that's it, baby. That's me. I'm, yes, he rose from the dead. And I was like, there you go. I have faith. I really did believe those things. I really, truly believe that Jesus was God's son, that he really lived here 2,000 years ago. He claimed to be God. He was God. He rose from the dead. I believed all those things. He said, okay, well, let me ask another set of questions. I said, shoot it. Because I thought I passed the test. I thought I was, like, proving him wrong. And he's like, um, does Satan believe that Jesus is God's son? And I was like, well, duh, of course he does. He was like there from the beginning, right? Like he knows Jesus is God's son. He goes, oh, okay. So like the demons, they believe Jesus is God's son. I was like, of course, they were there. Like you've taught me this. They were like there at the beginning. They like worshiped God in the very beginning before they fell. They all fell because they believed in Satan and that was a horrible decision. Right? And he's like, okay. He's like, so they believe, uh, do they believe that Jesus died on the cross? And I'm like, dude, you're not getting any smarter. Yes, they were there. You taught me. Demons are still around. Do you know that every demon you read about in the New Testament is still on this planet today? Still wreaking havoc. The demons actually at one point asked Jesus, don't cast us into the pit. Remember before you cast them into the pigs and they all drown themselves? They said, if you look at their language, do not cast us into the dark pit, this, this place. Well, what pit are they talking about? If you read the end of Revelation, you find out. They knew. They know what's coming. So I didn't know that at the time, but I'm just telling you because I know now. But anyway, <laughs> so he's like, demons. And I'm like, yes, demons, but weren't they there? I mean, this was before Passion of the Christ, so I didn't have a movie to reference, but I knew that Satan was there. And I'm like, Satan was defeated. The demons were defeated when Jesus died and rose from the dead. They were there. They thought they were winning. That was part of their strategy. Greg, you're, you're not, are you feeling okay? Yes, of course they knew that. He goes, well, do they believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Like literally he came back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was raised from the dead and he has a new body and he ascended and now he's glorified. Do they know that? I'm like, of 
you're, you're, I'm disappointed in you. Yes, the demons believe that wholeheartedly. They know it. They know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Of course they know it. And he's like, well, are they going to heaven? Okay, that's it. That was the last question. That's the worst question you could have asked. Of course not. Everyone knows Hitler and demons are not going to heaven. <laughs> Everyone knows this. I mean, even kids that don't want to go to church know this. And, um, and he's like, okay, so, so why would they go to heaven? Or why would you go to heaven, but they wouldn't? There's no difference between you and them. And that stumped me. It's the first time I ever thought about that. And I stepped back and I said, huh. Now, I remember that night and I was arrogantly pretending like I didn't listen to what he said, but that really bothered me. I went home and for weeks I was, I was convicted because I knew what he said was true. And he ended up telling me, Jack, you have the faith of a demon. Anybody in here know that demons never, ever doubt the reality of God, ever. They hate him. He's their enemy. They work against him. They're afraid of him. When Jesus was here, no one else knew it. The Jews wouldn't recognize him. The, the Gentiles didn't know who he was. They all rejected him, not the demons. Immediately, the demons were like, what do you want with us, son of man? What do you want with us, son of God? The Gospel of Luke uses son of God the most. What do you want with us? They know exactly who it is. Do you know that demons not only never doubt but they know more about God than you do. They know more facts, more visual representation. They have seen things that you have not seen. They've seen things from the heavenly realm. They know that without a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died, was buried, and rose on the third day. They know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. They never doubt that. But do you know that demons are not Christians? What's the difference between them and a real Christian? It's this simple, so simple. The demons believe, but they don't love him. They don't follow him. They shudder out of fear because God's going to judge them. They know who God is. They know how powerful God is. They're afraid of him, but they don't love him. They don't follow him. You know what was true about me until I was 16 years old? Between the ages of 8 and 16, I knew that Jesus was really God. I knew it. I had a deep conviction in my heart. I knew who God was. I knew that Jesus really was the right one. I even prayed for Jesus to come to my heart. Here's the difference. Until I was 16, I did not love him. I did not follow him. I had the faith of a demon. I had a demonic faith. And I found out when I was 16 and through studying the scriptures that James specifically writes about this, that there is something called a demonic faith. They believe and shudder. And 1 John 4 teaches us that perfect love casts out fear, and it's in the context not of like, hey, Christians never fear anything. Yes, you do, and you should fear God. There's a healthy sense of fear. But we do not fear God's wrath. Why? Because we've been made friends with God. That's the context of 1 John. So a demon's action shows that he doesn't love or follow Jesus, but when you truly believe who Jesus is, that he is who he says he is, it will result in love and obedience. It will do that. There's not, it might do that. It's not, it's a hope it's going to do that. A true faith, a real faith, a saving faith, which he writes about in the next verses, a saving faith will not just know that God exists, but a saving faith will love him and follow him. That is the third kind of faith. In verses 21 through 26, we have the third kind of faith, a saving faith. A real faith, a saving faith boils down to this a loving relationship with God. 
God was clear from the Old Testament till the very end of the book of Revelation that a real faith, what he's after, what he's seeking after, what it really means to believe, how you could be made right with God, is a saving faith. But that saving faith is going to look like something, and it's a loving, following relationship. There is a dead faith that doesn't do anything, and that faith can't save you. There's a demonic faith, and that faith can't save you. But there is a saving faith when you love God, and that's what James writes about. I, I wish I would have known this when I was eight. I wish I could have witnessed to my Christian youth ministry friends. Really. I wish I could have shared with them, hey, I'm not saved, and you shouldn't be stumped just because I prayed some prayer. You tell, teach me. Show me what it looks like to love God. Show me what it looks like when you believe in him in the way that is a saving faith. You are going to want to give your life to him. You're going to hate your sin, and you're going to love him. You're going to feel bad about when you break his law and you disobey him, not because you're afraid he's going to kill you, but because you love him. He gave his blood. He gave his son to die for you. He loves you. He's wise. He knows what's good for you. When you have a saving faith, you are going to inherently, instinctively, there's going to be the spirit inside you that is just shouting and whispering, but it's going to be speaking to you, and it's going to tell you, Jesus loves you. And if you love him, you will obey his commandments. You will follow him. Not perfectly, not all the time. You're going to mess up. We're, another session, we'll talk about something else that James brings up, those that keep falling. But a saving faith is one that loves God grieves over sin and wants to follow him so james gives this saving faith and then he says was not abraham our father he wanted to give another illustration because they'll never forget this was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar you see you know you believe you've been taught it's in the scripture you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works Unlike a dead faith or a demonic faith, a saving faith will sacrifice for God. You see Abraham, when he believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. This is repeated in the Old Testament and the New. In Romans chapter 4, it's, it was his action that God said he believed. He never, now he had said, oh, I trust you, but I'm just upset I don't have a son. He had sang that song before, but it wasn't until he went to offer up his son that he says, now I know. Now I know that you love me and you're willing to give up your son. He was teaching Abraham and the rest of the people and for the rest of the New Testament, when you know God, your actions will show what you truly believe. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Unlike demons, a saving faith will sacrifice. Saving faith sacrifices. And the scripture was fulfilled, the next verse, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. James, this Jewish man who's speaking to a culture very religious is saying a loving relationship a friendship ha being a friend of god that's how you know that you are truly saved because you feel that loving relationship with him james is trying to bring up more illustrations to say it, it is about a relationship you need to have this loving relationship with him that's how abraham knew that he believed and then verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is the most controversial statement in James's letter. It got him in big trouble. There are some high-level, high-famous, uh, well-known uh, preachers and that have doubted the validity of James being in the canon. Can this really be true? Because he said this. 
But if you understand that he's talking about three different kinds of faiths, he's not saying that works save you. He's saying a saving faith saves you because he's already demonstrated there's different kinds of faith. So he's, James is still saying faith saves you, but you don't know if you have faith until it impacts your life and your heart to where I love God and I hate my sin, I want to follow him. That's how you know that you have been reborn. That's how you know that you have the Holy Spirit within you. It's not because you repeated a phrase. Now, if you pray the prayer and you mean it, yes, you're saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is true. That is part of the process. But that prayer cannot be without a saving faith. Anybody can mimic words. Jesus taught about this in Matthew 7 and verse 19. He, he tells them, some people will say at the judgment, they will call me Lord, Lord, but they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they did not do the will of my Father. They never followed me. They didn't obey me. They didn't love me. It's because they didn't know me. A real saving faith has a relationship, a friendship with God to where you know that he has given his son for you and that he loves you, and that's the only way you're made right with him. And it just brings, it swells up like 1 John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. That is how we know we belong to God. John writes about this extensively, not just in the Gospel of John, but in his three other letters, uh, not including Revelation. He talks about it's your love for God that shows that you really do know him. And if you know him and you're known by him, you have nothing to worry about because there is no, there is no fear in that kind of love. So Jesus has said this, John has said this, everyone said this, and then he uses a different illustration he says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So who is more different than Abraham, the father of the faith, and Rahab, a Gentile prostitute woman? Could you have a bigger contrast? You can't. James is saying something that's scandalous to them. He's equating Abraham, who's famous to them, very important, and Rahab. He's equating them saying both of them believed and were counted as righteous. That's what made them right with God. It was their faith that didn't stand alone. It acted. It sacrificed a son. It risked her life and said, if you will, I will hide you. She hides him underneath on the roof, underneath the stuff. They go away. She comes out and talks to him and said, listen, I know about the whole story of Jericho. I know about how you guys defeated them. I know you guys are going to, your God is going to win. I know you're going to destroy all the people just like you did to all the people of Jericho. They burned everything. They killed everybody, men, women, child. I, I've heard about the stories. I know you're going to win. But if you, will, if you will let me live in my family, and so they give them that pact, you know, if you, ha you know, hang the scarlet thread on outside of your window, and then, because and then, we're going to destroy the whole city. If you want to be saved, we got every, only those people in the house. So, so James is giving them a story they're familiar with and saying, Rahab was a Gentile prostitute woman. You couldn't go lower on the totem pole. But she was counted right with God because of her faith, and her faith was acted out in works. And so he gives them these two illustrations and one good thing about the prostitute is this my my past is horrible i have sin marred all over my past that doesn't determine whether i'm a christian or not my past doesn't determine whether i'm right with god i don't have to do good works i don't have to do better works if i believe in jesus i am made righteous with god and so you see with these two illustrations that james is not saying if you do enough good works you're going to be right with god 
That's not what he's saying, or else he wouldn't use Rahab as an example. And so he's teaching them a saving faith is one that believes and there's actions beyond that. For, the par- for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So there are three kinds of faith written about in the New Testament, most specifically here in James chapter 2. And I just want to encourage you as you train your children up in the way that they should go. As you witness and make disciples with the neighbors around you and the people around you, younger people around you, faith is what saves you. That's what makes you right. But make sure you explain to them what the Bible explains as what a saving faith looks like. It feels like, it looks like, it talks like, it moves like something. And that is God's design for us. That is a saving faith. So thank you so much for listening. I'm going to pray. You have a five-minute break, and then we're going to hear from the missionary organization in varsity. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And I thank you for your truth, even the hard truths, um, that you love us and that there is a life that you have, a design purpose for us to follow you and to praise you, to be sanctified, to bear much fruit, to know you, to know you in a way that it changes our lives. I pray that you would instill that truth in our heart and that you would free us up from the bondage of sin and guilt and shame Uh, to a life that knows you and loves you and follows you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.